Ortho Science Bites. Ortho is proud to sponsor this podcast as a continuing commitment to advance patient care from donations to patient transfusions. I am Tony Casina, and today I am joined by Sandy Nance. Sandy has provided leadership to the American Rare Donor Program, American Red Cross Histocompatibility and Immunogenetics Laboratories, the National Reference Laboratories for Blood Group Serology, Molecular Testing, Neutrophil, and Specialized Testing. She earned her Master's in Pathology from the University of Maryland and her SBB from the Johns Hopkins Medical Institutions. Sandy has chaired the ISBT Working Party on Rare Donors and conceptualized the ISBT Working Party on Immunohematology and as the past chair managed the case studies. She has been inducted into the ASCP and the National Blood Foundation Halls of Fame and has received several awards, including the ABB's Sally Frank, John Elliott, and President's Awards. She is a member of Transfusion's editorial board and reviews for several journals. Sandy developed the polyethylene glycol method for serological testing and the monocyte monolayer assay to predict in vivo survival of transfused incompatible red cells. Sandy has been invited to present over 250 lectures and has been a frequent contributor to the scientific literature. Thank you so much for joining us today, Sandy. Okay, let's get started with the the first question, Sandy. Understanding that some rare blood groups are distributed differently across the world with some more prevalent in certain ethnic groups, can you start by sharing why finding a blood donor with the exact blood type is a huge challenge? I think that there are some limitations to the testing that's done on blood donors. You know, both from a human perspective, human resource perspective, and a financial resource um, point of view, many blood collection centers um, may have a focus on providing antigen-negative blood to meet the more common physician requests for transfusion of patients with antibodies to red cell antigens. And those are on like a prophylactic protocol uh, for selected antigen-negative units, those that are chronically transfused, for example. And I think the most frequent requests, you know, for antigen negative units are for units negative for what I'll call common antigens like big C, little c, big E, K, FY, FYB, JK, JKB, you know, MNS, and so on. And from that perspective, there's a focus on typing the donors for those antigens. And if the center has a semi-automated molecular platform assay uh, to predict antigen status, and if they use those, then they do get more antigens, including some of the high prevalence antigens that are on the platforms like little k, JSB, KPB, LUB, scan one and, and YTA may also be tested for. And there could be some restrictions in place that they put on as a protocol for the center, uh, like testing certain ethnic groups or maybe just certain ABO groups like Group O and restricting it to multi-time donors so that they don't have a first-time donor that's tested and doesn't come back. And that will help maximize obtaining those needed donor types. So what I'm trying to say is that in many centers, not all donors are tested for the red cell antigens. And those that are may not be tested for all antigens of high prevalence for sure, which does limit the number of donors that match patient types when they require rare blood. And 
as you said in the question, matching all types for all antigens the patient is negative for could be tremendously challenging, especially when looking at ABO or H type, and if the patient is group O negative. Just by the way, a survey of rare donors that was registered in the International Rare Donor Programs on a survey that I did showed that only 5.6% of the registered donors of the 19 types we asked for were O negative. So if your patient is O negative, that is certainly limiting as to the number of rare donors that might be already identified for, for them to receive. But thank you for that question. That, that's a tough one. Okay, Sandy, thanks for that information. What are some examples of rare blood types and what is the probability among the general population? Just another tremendous question because I think part of it is vastly unknown, but I'll tell you what my perspective is. And I think that when we look at country to country, the definition of rare blood types is going to vary. There's some commonalities though internationally. In general, I'd say that most countries define a rare type as being less than one in 1,000 people to be considered rare. And this is also true in the USA. There was a survey that I'll reference here for this in in 2020 of 22 countries that represented the ISBT Working Party on Rare Donors. And of the 19 types um, interrogated, there were 11, only 11 ATA negative, only eight ENA negative, only seven ST negative one, and only two MKMK phenotype donors registered. So that just tells you how rare those particular types are, but it doesn't tell you numbers of how much, like what is the percentage of which you would find them. And we did have an earlier publication of the Working Party. It was way back in 2015. And they asked the question, what are the most difficult types in each country to find? And of interest is that while there were differences, of course, from country to country, there were some commonalities here. And what, and I'll just highlight a few of them, RH null, D dash dash, U negative, and KO were listed by multiple countries. And then in the later survey, another indicator maybe of the rarity of the blood type was explored. And the question was asked about those rare requests that could not be met, even when you interrogated like the international rare donor programs, you couldn't meet these needs. And I think that's tremendously enlightening because the the rare types that were listed were RHCE allele selected units, where we're trying to do a molecular match on the patient's RHCE allele for the most compatible blood. U negative, which is not so difficult in this country. However, with other antigens present, it can be really difficult. KO, um, D dash dash, and GE minus two. The other one that was listed was H negative or Bombay, which I think is so interesting. Some countries have no trouble, but other countries, it's a very rare type. Other types that were listed are INB negative, which we had with the young child in Florida, and LUA neg B neg. And all of those had more than one request that was not filled. So that's that's quite concerning. You know, Those are the types that are really difficult to get. There's another piece to this, and that is that Dr. Tani, who is from the Japanese Red Cross, he has lent me some data, which is so interesting and could be internationally applied for some of it, but he looked at the rarity of blood types in Japan. 
And in his work, um, these there were types that were found in less than one in 100,000 donors. You know, we use the definition of one in 1,000 as being rare. He was able to measure down into one to 100,000. And some of the types that were listed there are the ones that I've said before, but D dash dash, I negative was amongst those, P, capital P negative, not P1, but P negative, and ENA negative. So it's so, that's, I think, applicable across probably the world. And one other thing to mention here, I think, um, is that for some of the rare blood types that we try to find, the molecular basis may not be known, so thus it might be not on the molecular platforms or even be able to be screened that way. And in the very, very rare types, those that are you know unique to a family or described recently, there may not be anisere to test large numbers of donors. So to go back to your question, you know, what are the some examples of rare blood types and the probability? It can be really quite rare. So I thank you for that question. It's a it's a long-winded answer, but I, I think it's a very good question. Again, thanks, Sandy. That's some interesting data. You mentioned about international rare blood programs. So how would a facility contact someone to obtain rare blood for a patient? Thank you, Tony, for that question. I think it's really important that uh, folks know how to do that across the country and across the world. And I think that for a, a verified current or future need uh, with the transfusion ordered by the physician, the first contact should be the blood center that supplies blood to the facility. That facility may have a liquid or frozen inventory that contains the units needed, uh, or if the need is not urgent, they might be able to contact the donor for a freshly drawn unit. And if there's none available in the blood center or no donors available or the need is urgent, then the facility may be a member of the American Rare Donor Program or ARDP, and they can contact them for a national search of the 90 facilities that are members of the ARDP. And if not, they can go to an, a member and ask them to act as a portal for them. And if that search of the ARDP, which is a nationalized search, is not productive, then the next step would be to go to an international search. For that, a monocyte monolayer assay would need to be performed to show the clinical relevance of the antibody, along with knowing whether there could be an autologous donation, maybe that wouldn't be enough and maybe you'd need more blood, but that, to know whether that can be a possibility along with sibling testing. And then the last step would be the permission needs to be obtained for an international search, which can require an IRB, can require patient permission or the informed adult and the, and the patient's physician. Most of the countries um, in the ISBT Working Party on Rare Donors follow the steps that are listed in the rare blood request flowchart of the working party with only a few exceptions. And this flowchart is basically the same as I just described, which is followed by the USA. So thank you for that question. Thanks, Sandy. It sounds like quite a challenge to find blood for some of these patients. How do countries work together to provide rare blood for patients when the rare blood cannot be found in their country? Are there any line resources so I appreciate that question, Tony. It's one of my passions to make sure that rare blood is available for the patients who need it. And there is a tremendous international collaboration between countries globally. Uh, there's 26 countries represented in the ISBT Working Party for Rare Donors. 
And in the 2022 ISVT survey, 13 countries reported importing 44 units from 12 other countries. Can you imagine importing 44 rare units? It's amazing. And from those units, 10 different rare types were involved. And I think that that piece shows the, the, that the working party is really more like a working party than it is maybe a, a committee in that when a rare blood need is established in a, in a country, everyone looks in their inventories and looks at their donors in order to try to find units for that patient. And we in the USA have utilized that at least um, once a year and sometimes more often. And certainly in the case of the young girl, young child in Florida, the INB negative request, it was required. We also had an unusual request. Imagine this, JKA negative, B negative in a D negative person. And we had the, the good fortune to have friends in Finland who had such donors and also in New Zealand. So the USA was able to import those units for that patient, which kept her alive through other holidays, through birthdays. It, it, it's an amazing resource um, internationally. So thank you for that question. Thanks, Sandy. Uh, it sounds like cooperation among countries when it comes to supplying rare blood is invaluable. Sandy, what can be some strategies to prevent rare blood shortages and to ensure transfusion in patients that require blood units? Well, Tony, I wish I had that answer and could make it happen. I think that strategies to find more rare units can include family studies, particularly siblings of the patients with the rare blood needs. This can be the most productive testing that is done. However, due to lack of siblings, due to ABO, incompatibilities that may not be able to be done. So other testing of random donors, which we could enrich by testing certain ethnic groups to look for specific antigens that are known to be more prevalent. Examples there might include U negative, JKA negative, B negative, um, YTA are known to exist in specific populations, or I'm aware of some specific geographic areas that may be more productive. For example, um, being VEL negative or capital P negative, not P1, but capital P. The other approaches that, you know, could be used are perhaps to target group O. In the survey that we did on the working party of those 19 types, 46% of them were O, which was great because almost half were group O, but wouldn't it be great if they were all group O and they could be used for any patient? Other concentrated efforts could be on multi-time donors of those that are already typed for some productive antigens like um, big C or little c, often R1s are needed. And I think that approaches now are moving towards whole exome sequencing and targeted sequencing, and that will be very helpful if the cost of that activity comes down to be able to be done on all blood donors. I think that would be tremendously useful. You could search a database and find uh, donors that may not have ever been serologically typed. So certainly something to look for in the future. But thank you for that question. I wish I could have that answer all wrapped up, but I don't. Thanks, Sandy, for explaining how you might go about to prevent these rare blood shortages throughout the, the, the world. Sandy, let's now talk about donor and pretransfusion testing. What role does accurate testing play in identifying these rare blood donors or patients? For the small and medium lab without access to molecular testing, what are the serological tools that can be implemented in their laboratory? That is a great question to explore. 
you know, we assume that every request that comes in is an accurate request, and that's exactly what the patient needs. But accurate test results are of prime importance. I can only imagine the problems that can be caused if a rare donor unit is requested to be, let's say, VEL negative and negative for big C, K, and FYB, only to have the unit received by the transfusing facility and bound to be incompatible because the FYB type was incorrect. The American Rare Donor Program requires that typings on donors are done in duplicate when possible, and that a molecular test result is actually required for some antigens and acceptable for one of the types for other antigens. So that piece is very important, but the other piece you mentioned, which was accuracy and antibody identification, especially on a current sample, because if a patient's forming antibodies, having a current sample evaluated is, is of paramount importance. And when there, while there have been like uncommon events of discovering that the patient has an antibody to a low prevalence antigen that was unknown, the facility who's receiving that product certainly does not want to have missed an antibody to a common blood group antigen and then have that shipped unit, perhaps even a deglycerolized unit with a limited expiration date, or even more important, an international imported unit be incompatible. And I think that behooves the, the making sure that that antibody identification, as I said, is done on a current sample. And if it's a antibody, includes an antibody to a high prevalence antigen or even more complicated an auto specificity, that, that that sample be evaluated for all antibodies to common antigens um, each time it's evaluated. And, you know, having an incompatible unit be shipped in is is so costly, not only for the patient in, the, in terms of the delay of transfusion, but also the expense to the facility in importing a unit that can't be used for that patient. So definitely that's really important. And I think that um, what is a serologic tool that could be implemented? I think really helpful, especially in these times of limited staffing, if there is testing in the facility for automated like ABORH and antibody screen. I think that that automated method could also be used for testing for common antigens. And that would be a great start, you know, for patients and donors if the facility has the ability to do that. And some of the automated equipment also allows non-routine SEER to be used in like a cross-match mode that can be used for mass testing of donors or patients. So that could be used perhaps for screening for high prevalence antigen negative in a population perhaps that may be it may be more prevalent. And definitely, if the facility has this patient with a rare blood need, testing the siblings will be certainly the most productive, which as many as one in four being compatible um, instead of the one in 1,000 or the random donor population numbers. So I think it would be great if there were protocols in place. If you have a patient that needs rare blood, that you have a protocol in place that would be helpful to address the need. Thank you for that question, Tony. Thanks, Sandy, for that explanation of pretransfusion testing that uh, might be helpful in, the, in these types of laboratories. And finally, to end this fascinating conversation, how do institutions obtain access to rare blood products and what would be your message to the transfusion medicine community on this relevant topic? Thank you, Tony. That is such a great question. So primarily, uh, it's important to have an open channel to the right personnel at the blood center 
who provides the units to the center. Or, you know, there are some facilities that only reach out for rare blood needs because they are able to supply most of their own blood needs with their own units that are typed. But it's really important to have this rare blood connection, I'll call it, uh, to have an established contact for rare blood needs. And the blood center that they might use might already be a member of ARDP or, or that facility can contact a facility who can act as a portal to the ARDP for obtaining the red cell units. And the ARDP phone number can be used as well, 215-451-4900, to be able to contact them in case there is no contact already established. In general, I'd say it's really helpful to know the patient's clinical situation, uh, to be sure that all the vital personnel involved are informed. And that means like the facility physician, the patient or the responsible adult, transfusion service staff, and then on the blood center side, staff including the IRL, the blood center physician, and often the blood center shipping staff needs to be aware as well because if international units are coming to be imported, it's important to be able to receive them. We have found, and I think um, other facilities in other countries have found that a conference call with all of these people involved is imperative especially if units can't be provided quickly, and especially if international importation is required. And I think it's useful because we've different time zones across this country and certainly with other countries to follow this with an email summary of the call with the action steps. And then as the action steps are completed, everyone can be informed of this, where we are in the process of importing blood or getting blood available to the patient especially with these different time zones, it's really important they can put it in at almost any time. And that makes the timely, really timely communication possible. Now, of course, there could be delays and there could be the fact that there might not be blood available. So having a contingent plan for the patient is really essential as well. And to have the physician of the patient know uh, when that might be needed. So it's a, it's a difficult conversation to have, of course, but I think that having a plan in place is really helpful. And I know that the American Red Owner Program will help the facility through this process. But if we're talking globally, it might be a regional blood center. It might be the regional responsibility. And then I didn't mention this before, but the IBGRL is the one who hosts the International Rare Donor Panel. And that is who is contacted when a country cannot find units domestically. And that's a really important resource as well. And often we will include those personnel on communication so they also know where we are in the search. So long-winded answer to a question, but I really think that this piece is so important to having institutions have access to rare blood products and provision of the rare red, red cell products is so important for patients to survive their, their certain surgery or their illness and to be able to have chemotherapy and other treatments I think that it's really important to be able to provide these and not um, give up too early. So hopefully the American Rare Donor Program, the International Rare Donor Panel are resources to enable a patient to get the rare blood that they need to survive. But thank you for that question. Sandy, thanks for that explanation of uh, how institutions can go about getting access to rare blood products and how they might be able to help facilitate the availability of rare blood products. Okay, Sandy, great. I really want to just thank you for taking the time with us today and giving us your experiences and insights 
on this fascinating topic on collaborative efforts to ensure blood availability for patients in need of it. Thank you, Tony, so much for the invitation to this podcast. As you might have guessed from our conversation, I'm very passionate about rare donor programs and mentoring other countries through the rare donor program process of implementation. I'm also so passionate about trying to make sure that patients get the rare blood they need because I know that it helps them through chemotherapies and survival and surgeries and enables them to have another birthday or another holiday. And I think it's so important. So I appreciate the opportunity to disseminate this a little more broadly. Thank you so much. Sandy, it's been a pleasure to talk with you. And again, thank you so much for your time today on this podcast. I hope you all enjoyed this podcast episode about rare blood programs and the different resources available to ensure better matching for certain patient populations and how donor programs can collaborate to provide rare blood. Make sure to review the sections within the podcast description for any reading materials that we've suggested. Based on today's podcast, I'll leave you with our pop quiz. What are some examples of rare blood types? You can always go back and listen again. Thank you for listening. Please subscribe to OrthoScience Bites, our monthly podcast, where there will be discussions on more complex questions we face every day in our labs, brought to you by OrthoClinical Diagnostics, pioneering advances in diagnostics for 80 years, because every test is a life. Take care, stay healthy and safe.